Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green that explores social entrepreneurship and the pieces of people's lives that they tend to leave out of their bios. Echoing Green is a premier global investor in new leaders who are boldly working to change the world, providing fellowships, community, seed stage funding, and strategic support at that critical stage where they're just trying to get off the ground. My name is Eric Dawson. I'm a father, husband, social entrepreneur, storyteller, and I have the distinct honor of serving as a chaplain for Echoing Green. I, along with my colleagues, support fellows on their spiritual and emotional well-being as they mediate between who they often feel they need to be publicly with how they often feel privately. I'm a fraud. I'm not good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. On Course is about the journey that these leaders take from the moment they decide to act, to create, to change. My conversation today is with Carlos Mark Vetta, co-founder and executive director of Pay Our Interns, the only organization in the United States fighting to ensure all students, regardless of background or socioeconomic status, have equitable access to future career opportunities through paid internships. Carlos, I actually want to uh, start from the very beginning. Um, take me back to a moment in your childhood that you would say has defined who you are and what you're passionate about. Could be something big, could be something small, but but take me back to that moment of of, of little Carlos um, and and what and what what he was like and, and and what was he passionate about? As a child, I was really passionate about Greek mythology. And anything to do with the Tudor family. So any history about European uh, battles, uh, mysteries, castles, uh, that's, I consume that all the time. I actually got in trouble for reading too much. So as a child, I would have that little light that you have on top of the book and I would just read it in the night. So, so, so your, your, your big rebellion as a childhood was, I'm going to sneak out and look up some Greek gods. Yes, <laughs> and, 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 and where do you think that came from, that, that, that sort of a, a love of, of both history, mythology, that curiosity? I think it's the ability to reimagine things that, you know, they can be different from what they are. And it's kind of a way to escape from what's there sometimes. So I think kind of that's where my passion comes for that. So, so uh, th this love of fantasy, the, this um, this imagining worlds uh, that either no longer exist or never existed. What was what was your world like? Like, take us back to the to the sights, smells, textures, your family, your schools. What what was your what was that space like? I grew up in Colombia for the first six years of my life, and I actually had a pretty stable childhood. Um, I think a turning point for us was, as you all know, living in Colombia was not, you know, walk in the park in the 90s. It was no Disneyland. There was a lot of violence with the FARC, the cartels. And I, I believe I was like five and I was visiting my grandparents in Caicedonia. And, you know, it was a summer night. The sun, the sun was coming down. We were watching TV. And then out of the blue, the FARC, which is a paramilitary group, took, you know, came down from the mountains and took over the entire town. Um, and basically that night we kind of had to hide under the bed, not knowing what was going to happen. At that moment, my parents decided that we needed to move to the United States. And then we were very fortunate that we had some family here. We had the support, which you can't say about a lot of people. And then, yeah, we came here when I was six years old. 
What was that moment like coming to the United States from from Colombia? Um, what what was that transition like for you? I had been here before, so it wasn't that much of a shock. I think for me it was classes. I was getting D's and F's in my English classes, and my dad was getting mad. And I'm just kind of like, well, <laughs> you know, when you're learning a whole new language, it is what it is. Uh, so I think that's something that I remember pretty quickly. The other thing is personal space. You know, in in a lot of Latin cultures, we're familial. It's all about the community. You hug people and everything. Here, it's not always the same thing. And I remember my teacher telling me, oh, you're my personal bubble. And I was like, what bubble? Like, I was actually looking for a bubble. So, so you show up in the U.S. as a uh, mythology-loving, hugging kid. Um, and you decide to go to American University, which, which feels like going to D.C., going to that school, uh, was a significant uh, driver for, for what you've chosen to do in, in terms of your social change work. What was it about American? What was it about DC that, that drew you? So I think the moment particularly that kind of like lit um, a fire in me for, you know, social justice did not come until late middle school, like early high school. And it was kind of where as you all know, most folks, a lot of folks went through financial issues during the 2008 financial crash. And in my family was, you know, no different. We had our house foreclosed. We had medical bills. And that moment, I remember my dad sitting me down um, because, you know, even though like my parents came from working class backgrounds, my dad was doing well um, back then. And he basically said, hey, if you don't find scholarships, you know, to go to college, you're not going to go to college. And then having to move into public housing and really seeing the other side of America that I don't think we talk a lot about. So for me, I guess it was kind of living through those experiences that really opened my eyes. And then in terms of AU, it really came down that I, you know, I see politics as a process of who gets what, right? Like whose trash hand gets taken out, whose roads get paved, which community hospitals get funded or not. So in my eyes, you know, if I came to AU, to DC, I could experience all of this firsthand. And and what was AU like for you? What, what was the experience of, of being there and being in DC? What'd you love? What, what drove you crazy? Initially, it was not easy. Um, there were times where people would kind of throw microaggressions. My first year, especially like I had two professors call me Jose or Juan accidentally. Um, even though my name was Carlos, like I don't, anyways, yeah, stuff like that or I remember a moment where we were talking about poverty, which is kind of ironic, you know, when you're going to school that costs like $50,000 a year. And someone raised their hand and said that people were poor because they were lazy. And if they worked harder, they'd have more money. And, you know, my blood was boiling in that class. I actually, shocker, spoke up <laughs> and, you know, basically told them that I have family friends that work six, seven days a week, 13 hour shifts. You know, how dare you say that? That's not how life works. Or another class where we talk about minimum wage. And I asked everyone, I said, raise your hand if you or your parents have had a minimum wage job and none of them could. And I said, it's really easy to discuss these things when you're actually not living it. So it was tough. Also, I had to start working immediately. And the friends that I had built, um, they stopped inviting me things saying, oh, well, you're just so busy. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. You know, I can't ask mom or daddy for $1,000 checks. So I think initially it was tough. With that being said, I think what kind of drove me is, look, you know, 
we may have had different high school experiences. You may have gone to a boarding school, but we're at the same college. There is no VIP you know, access at the career center. So it really is up to me to take advantage of all these resources. And I did that. So tell me about the decision to, to do an internship. What was that like? What, what drove that decision? It was all very much accidental. I was invited to Congress for a press conference on youth unemployment. I was invited. Um, I actually didn't even have a full suit. I showed up without like a tie or things. After the press conference, I'm walking down the hallways with my friend. And I see the name Joe Baca, who was one of my representatives. And I said, you know what? I'm going to walk in. And my friend was like, what are you doing? And I was like, he represents me. I don't see the issue. And I walk in and there's two people there. I start talking to them. I realize one of them is, you know, the head honcho. And I said, hey, is there any way I can get involved? And she said, we have internships. So I went to the career center. I They helped me create an, uh, a resume, which I'd never really done. I sent it to her and then I got it. So talk about your internship experience. What, what was it like? Uh, what did you learn from it? What did you love? What was hard? I did like six internships, uh, three unpaid, Congress, the White House, and the European Parliament in Brussels. The first one was definitely not easy. You know, when they said it was unpaid, I was like, okay, well, it is what it is, right? Like, you have to pay your dues. But, you know, I couldn't ask my parents for financial help. So I ended up working a side job on campus, interning about 30 hours a week, and then taking six courses as a 17-year-old. So as opposed to like really enjoying the internship and going out with other people, I was basically fighting to not fall asleep. Um, and something I talk a lot about is also like walking down the hallways of Congress and realizing that no one really looks like you. And that's something that we don't talk enough about, how the decision makers, and not just in government, but you talk media, healthcare, companies, they don't reflect our diverse communities. And we end up paying the price for that. You know, it wasn't until my third unpaid internship at the White House where you had to wear a suit every day and I only owned one suit. So my whole family pitched in, helped me get another one. But one time someone made a commentary like, don't you have other clothing? And that, of course, you know, is not something you want to hear. And it just kind of just showed like one little small thing where like it costs a lot of money to do these uh, experiences. My name is Eric Dawson and this is On Course. I'm speaking with Carlos Marcvetta, co-founder and executive director of Pay Our Interns. We'll be back with more after a short break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. Today, I'm speaking with Carlos Marcvetta, co-founder and executive director of Pay Our Interns. So much of your, your work is about access, 
right? Yes. Um, and, and access, you know, there's so many access points um, that you yourself w- were navigating, hmm. right? Whether it's the access to, to education, housing. Um, tell us about, about the importance of access when it comes to internships. Like, what is it about yeah. internships that are so essential for um, accessing uh, power, yeah. privilege, experience? I think unless you've, you know, you've recently done an internship, there is this misconception that it's kind of like being part of a book club. Like it's a nice experience, right? But it's not a necessity. And, you know, what I would say is there was a study that came out this summer showing a disparity in terms of access to paid internships. So for example, 74% of white students had a paid internship. Meanwhile, for black students, it was only 6%. Additionally, internships on average can cost $6,000 for three months when you include, you know, rent, transportation, travel. And then you look at like the racial wealth in America and white families have 10 times more than black families. Um, some could say, well, then just don't do one if you can't afford one, right? Which is kind of a sensible thing to say. The problem is in 1992, only 17% of college students in America did an internship. In 2007, it jumped up to almost 70%. So it's basically become a requirement. That is what employers are looking for. So if you don't have the money to do an internship and then you graduate, yay, you have your degree, but you don't have the experience, you're not going to get a job. So that's kind of some of the reasons why internships are so important to have on your resume. I'm struck uh, in, in your telling, Carlos, about all of the barriers that are, you know, hidden, not so hidden um, around around access, right? And, and so I'm curious, um, you started an organization um, f- from that experience. What was that? What was that moment of obligation? Uh, what inspired you to to organize to get started? That exact moment in terms of where I said, hey, something needs to change was when my mentee mentioned that uh, he had to skip out on buying groceries to pay for his dry cleaning costs for an unpaid internship, the same one that I had done. And it was that moment where I said, hey, we need to you know, really break these generational curses. So I decided to quit my job, which my parents thought, you know, I had kind of lost it. And I launched Pair Interns exactly four years ago. What was that conversation with your parents like? I'm I'm, I'm always fascinated uh, by those of us who who whose families you know, really struggled to give us access uh, to create opportunities, particularly financial stability. And then we come back and say, "Sorry, I'm I'm actually going to do something that is that is unpredictable, financially unsustainable, and might risk my health and well being." They were like, you have a job with Van Jones, the commentator from CNN. Like, it's a pretty good job. You have these various perks. Like, why are you leaving that for something that, in many ways, they don't view that as a career? Like that in my my culture, that's just not a viable option. Like, it's very much, quote unquote, black or white. Like, you're either a doctor, a nurse, a teacher, or a police officer. There is no such thing as being an advocate or a social entrepreneur. So they did not take it lightly, but kind of, as you can see, there's a theme here. When I feel a deep conviction, I will do as I please. So I still quit my job. So um, you leave a a job with a a ton of prospects and perks. 
Um, tell us about the beginnings. Uh, what was it like? What did you do first? People always say, well, wow, like, you know, how much money did you guys start with? Because, you know, we had an impact pretty quickly. And one thing I always mention is I had no idea what seed funding is. I thought it was like something you garden with, right? Because, you know, usually you go to several investors, you kind of pitch your concept or idea, and then you get money, then you do the work. We did the opposite. We launched this. It was very much like very grassroots. It was a Facebook group that, you know, ultimately started to become like an actual organization. Um, I knew this was not going to be easy, right? And in that time, there was depolarization. I mean, it's still bad, but back in 2016, 2017, and it just did not seem that feasible. You know, like trying to get interns paid is kind of like the UN world piece. It sounds great, but it's not going to happen. Um, but that experience that I had done at American, you know, advocating for workers really showed me that, you know, you don't need a lot of wealth or power or name to create change. My co-founder, uh, Guillermo, myself, both were unpaid Hill interns. So we decided to kind of start there. The issue we had was that there was no data on who paid and who didn't. And, you know, it wasn't like an accident. It's kind of intentional. So it really made our diffi- our job difficult, right? Because there's only, you know, so much pushing you can do with stories. You need that data. So we ended up actually surveying off 540 plus offices. And what did you discover? We discovered that in the house, like about 90% of interns, internships were unpaid. Uh, so it was, it was pretty bad. And then with that data, we went back to offices and we kind of leveraged that and said, hey, you know what, we're going to go to the media and basically call you out. So you have an option. Do you want to be in this group A or group, group B? So we kind of used that and it definitely worked. We released a report June 30th and we kind of, you know, started building from there. And what power did that report have? This is where I'm kind of brag, but a lot of reports are kind of made and it just kind of collects dust. Our report listed who paid and who didn't, and then it provided a recommendation in terms of a long-term solution where we recommended there be a fund that every office can access to pay interns and only for intern pay. And so the report came out June 2017, and then by May 2018, a group of senators had you know read the report. They kind of came together and successfully pushed for five million dollars to the Senate, and then the House it was eight point eight million. So most reports can't claim that. Where you know they kind of come out, and a year later, we made history. So your work brought twelve to thirteen million dollars of compensation for interns in Congress. The first year. Now it's at seventeen million. It's been increasing. What does that feel like to just say those words? I, re- I don't know if there's a certain emotion that can really encapsulate how I feel. For me, it's more kind of like we did it regardless of all the challenges. Guillermo and myself being called dropouts, having no money, you know, no really connections to do this work. And we did it. So it, it, it feels great. However, there's still a lot more work that we want to do. But definitely, like, you know, there are some days where I kind of feel like crap. But I'm like, you know what? I did that. So it, it feels good. I imagine one of the challenges of finding that level of success so so quickly, and I'm sure it didn't feel quick, and I, and I know it took a lot of work, 
Um, that was 2018. What have the past two years been like? Like, what do you do next after a project like that? Surprisingly a lot. We thought once that happened, like, hey, we're good, you know, we can kind of do something else, do states or nonprofits. The problem started with implementation. Right after the president signed the bill, we had over 80 offices reach out to us from December to January 2019, basically saying, hey, how much do we pay interns? Where do we get diverse talent? All these questions, right? So we actually end up creating a guide. Interestingly enough, we were not getting paid for this work, which that part I think was frustrating. Um, so the issue now, and one thing that, you know, why I, I continue doing this work is I think we need to move past saying pay interns to saying, well, how much are you paying and who is benefiting from these paid opportunities? Because there are several organizations that do pay interns and pay them well, but they're only recruiting from a select few schools. And that's in Congress is the same way, you know, where some members, 40, 50% of the staff come from Ivy leagues. Um, so that's really been the next challenges where it's like, okay, this is great money, but it's not enough for the amount of interns there. And sometimes it's still going to the children of donors. So, you know, our work very much continues over the last two years. We've actually also pushed presidential campaigns to start paying we did that successfully. So Senator Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, Senator Elizabeth Warren, they all now pay. We've pushed nonprofits. And it's also kind of been um, this domino effect where people see what we're doing and then they kind of want to replicate that in their own community. So there is a college student named Jordan who was an AmeriCorps fellow in the office of the mayor of Philly. None of the interns there were getting paid. And he basically organized them <laughs> kind of did his own study saying, well, how are you surviving since it's all unpaid and launched his own campaign. And, you know, when we saw that we partnered up, we amplified his efforts. And now the, the mayor of Philly has a paid internship program. That's Carlos Mark Vada, a labor entrepreneur and co-founder of Pay Our Interns. We'll be back with more after a short break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and this is On Course the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Carlos Margveta, labor entrepreneur and co-founder of Pay Our Interns. What's next for, for the organization and, and for you? So, so five years from now, when, when, we, uh, when we do a follow-up podcast, five years. <laughs> what, what stories it, are you going to tell? I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to be here forever. I'm doing it now because I love it. As, as I mentioned, it is four years now, which does seem like a long time. And I was actually thinking of going to grad school this upcoming year. Uh, but it wasn't until the last three, four months that we've actually received two large grants and fundraising has really picked up. And long story short, like next year, we're actually going to have the funding we need to have the team and resources uh, we require to do the work. So we're really excited in terms of what's next is we're pushing for federal government interns to be paid, interns in the media, arts worlds, 
nonprofit sector. So there's still a lot of, you know, things that need to change. Also, interim protections. In many states, there are no protections against sexual harassment or discrimination for interns since they're not paid. So there's a lot of work to be done. Speaking of, of work to be done, uh, we're in the middle of a, a pandemic that's affecting every element of the workforce. What has this moment meant for you and your work? When March came, we were going to launch this program series where we were traveling across the country with certain members, and that all got scrapped, right? Which was a lot of sponsorship money that was lost. And we had actually been rejected from several grants those prior months, um, which sometimes people are like, oh, really? Because like you're a Forbes, 30 and 30, you're an equity fellow. And I'm like, yep, you, you still sometimes face the same issues. So there was not that much money in the bank account. And I went home. Um, I took a pay cut. Like, I mean, I only made, I think, $500 in 1000 March and April. In terms of our response, we had over 150 students reach out being like, hey, do you guys have money to for so I can fly back home? You know, I need a place for housing because in some ways they're having a combo of, of problems where schools are shutting down, right? They're booting up their students and internships and jobs are being canceled. And there really is like no central group that does this work in terms of like giving money and nor do we, right? So we actually um, launched a campaign called hashtag save internships. And we estimated that up to a million internships would be canceled this summer and the whole premise of it was, A, create an interim relief fund where you can apply and you could ask for from $150 to $1,100. And then B, really work with organizations to convert it to virtual as opposed to in person. People were kind of dubious of part A because they're like, that's not what you guys do. And in some ways, it kind of went against everything we believed in, right? Because we were pushing for orgs to pay their own interns. But we're very cognizant, like, hey, this is a need right now. No one is kind of jumping up to the plate to do it. So we might as well do it. And our interim relief fund started small, you know, and then we ended up raising about like 25,000 throughout the summer. And then just last week, we got $150,000 from a foundation for our fund. Amazing. And what has been the response from, from your community, the, the, the interns? What, do you, what are you seeing out there? What are the trends? I mean, the, the impacts of the pandemic are devastating. I think for a lot of folks, internships are kind of like, not just for, how do I say this? It's, it's usually for to get experience. For some communities, especially communities of color, uh, their summer internship that was paid, they were kind of counting on that money to help not only pay them their bills, but also help contribute to family bills. And that was all gone, right? So like I can think of someone, her name is Lizbeth just graduated high school from California. Mom's a housekeeper that's undocumented. Dad works in the fields. Her mom got laid off. Dad's not really working that much and she needs to help her family. So we actually gave her a grant through the fund. And then I remember calling her and I'm like, well, at least, you know, you're going to start at Stanford, right? She got a full ride to go there. Come September, she said, oh, actually I deferred for a year because I need to help my parents with bills. And I mean, you know, that's heartbreaking. I'm really happy that we're actually able to hire her and now she's helping run the fund. Uh, what advice do you have for folks who are listening to you who, who are inspired? What else needs to be done in this field? You know, perhaps not by you and your organization, but, but where do you want to see other people taking action around this question of, of access, equity? From like an, um, a personal standpoint, it's being a mentor. 
to, you know, one or two college students, that's one thing a lot of people are asking, like, you know, you know, even if I can intern, I would like some mentorship, donating to relief funding your community. Uh, and then in terms of a structural standpoint, I really think this is a time for government philanthropy and the private sector to come together for solutions. We actually had pushed the federal government to include more funds um, for youth in these COVID response bills. For those that don't know, if you were a dependent above 16, you did not receive a stimulus check back in April. So that's you know another part. And as you all see, have seen, the federal government has not really done much around youth, which is a shame. Uh, but I really think that's kind of the response from a structural standpoint. Do you ever think of running for office? Do you ever think of stepping into those spaces so this doesn't happen again? I do, but not right now. First of all, politicians are very hard to work with. <laughs> uh, but I actually, I'm going to push back on your question. Please. Because there is this thought where if you want to create change, you have to be a politician. But I look at someone like Dolores Huerta, right? Who, you know, did organizing uh, for agricultural workers. And I would argue she's had more of an impact in America than a dozen members of Congress combined. So up until this point, I have been able to create change within the federal government as a private citizen. So if you could not be doing what you're doing now, but could do anything, what would that look like? Well, growing up, I either wanted to be a lawyer or an admissions counselor. So those are two things I, I do like. And actually, I, I really don't know. Um, I think there is this thing in our culture about like super professionalism where like you start something and you already have to start thinking about the next thing. Right. And that's not how I work. Like, yeah, I, I think it's good to have goals and, and know a sense of direction, right. Of where you want to go. But I generally love what I do because people always ask me that, like, what's the next thing? What's like, you know, are you, you know, those people that like they graduate, they do like this really nice fellowship and this, and then they run for office. That's not, I don't see this as a stepping stone. So, Carlos, we're going to end with 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 a lightning round of questions, uh, and the, the goal here is to hear a little bit about how you think about your life and a little bit more about you. So, first, if you could sit down with yourself fifteen years ago, so young Carlos, hmm. what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to, you know, never forget to enjoy life. I think because of the situations and circumstances I was in in middle school and with poverty, I was so focused on school extracurricular activities. And I sometimes forgot to just enjoy being a kid. And I regret that. If you could sit down with yourself 15 years from now, what would you want to ask yourself? Did I do the work fearlessly? Tell me about your ideal Saturday. Saturday, we've got nothing else scheduled. What would the day look like? The day would look like me going into Rock Creek Park, which is a big park here, and just walking, meditating, coming back, eating some good food because I love eating. I eat my feelings. And then hanging out with friends and then ending the day watching Netflix. Who is someone who inspires you? Shirley Chisholm. You know, she grew up in a time, I mean, it's always been tough being a Black woman, but especially back in the 60s and 70s, and she was fearless. 
you know, she very much talked about if you don't have a seat at the table, make your own table. She dared to reimagine a different society. And, you know, thanks to her nonstop advocacy, both as an advocate and as a member of Congress, our society is better for that. My final question, if you if you had an ice cream sundae named after you, what would be on it? Mango, plantains, and strawberry ice cream. Mango, plantains, and strawberry ice cream. I love it. Um, so for, for those who are listening and are inspired by your work, how can they find out more? You can go uh, on payourinterns.org. You should definitely follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is just payourinterns. And, you know, we share stories. We provide paid internship opportunities and other ways to engage. Carlos, it's been such a pleasure to, to talk to you. I, I want to lift up just a few notes of appreciation as we end. Um, there are three things that, that you lifted up in your conversation that I think are really important and that we don't hear enough about. The first is uh, this challenge of how we value lived experience as much as we value academic experience mm -hmm. um, and the wisdom that is shaped um, by cleaning a bathroom and raising a child and marching in the streets. The second is that uh, who we are matters as much as what we do. There are so many folks out there uh, leading social change who aren't living it. Um, and I, I love the challenge that you offer to yourself. And I want to extend that to our listeners. And, and finally, the, the image I'm leaving with you is, is, is little Carlos uh, sneaking in with a light on his book, breaking <laughs> all the rules by reading about Greek mythology uh, and castles. Um, to know that you were a rebel um, uh, and that your, your, your rebellion was knowledge. Um, the way that you rebelled uh, was to grow and to learn and to challenge yourself. Um, I think that's a great uh, way to live a life and it's a great uh, challenge for those of us listening uh, and to think about um, that, that sometimes justice uh, is staying up late and reading a book. <laughs> Um, thank you, Carlos, for, for sharing your story. Uh, but most of all, thank you for, for being who you are. You know, thank you for having me. To learn more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. And don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course.